Collectively Wild is here for you About all the weird stuff that players do Authentically strange and objectively styled Let's play ball It's Effectively Wild It's Effectively Wild It's Effectively Wild Hello and welcome to episode 2080 like the scouting scale of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rally of Fangraphs. Hello. Where are you on the scouting scale today? Oh, gosh. I uh, <laughs> Can I answer that question with any degree of confidence? Um, I'm still quite tired. Um cats man sometimes the cats they get you mm. in the night but um i'm well other than being tired so okay. i'm like uh well let's put me at like i'm like a 55 right now let's yeah. put me at a 55 okay not bad above average <laughs> that's all we need here so i just went to fangraphs.com a mm. great website about baseball that i browse from time to time and i saw a headline on a new post by one Chris Gilligan, and it says, who will be next to win their first, mm. as in their first championship for the franchise, mm -hmm. now that the Rangers have uh, finally gotten on the board. And I thought, what a perfect banter prompt for the beginning mm. of this podcast. I have not yet read the article because I don't want to spoil myself on <laughs> what Chris concluded. I don't know if you edited this one. I didn't, and, so I okay, have so you not don't know yet. either had a chance either um, all right yeah but <laughs> so I, <laughs> we can each answer this and maybe <laughs> speculate about what chris said and uh, he seems like a reasonable sort so i have i have no reason to think that he would come to a different conclusion than we would mm. but we've got five options yeah. We have your Seattle Mariners, yeah. we have the Milwaukee Brewers, we have the Tampa Bay Rays, we have the San Diego Padres, and we have the Colorado Rockies. So, of those five, <laughs> who's most likely to win Should the first? Should we go in, like, ascending order of likelihood? Because like, the, okay. the least likely, I think, is um, probably also the least controversial. We, we're yes. both taking the Rockies, I imagine, as the least... Yes. Likely. Although I'm I'm sensitive to this because, you know, people will re-listen to old episodes yeah. of Effectively Wild and sometimes in the Patreon Discord group or in the Facebook group, they will post predictions that we made. It's often not me making the prediction because I try right. not to, <laughs> but sometimes sometimes I can't help it. Sometimes we do drafts of, mm -hmm. say, uh, which teams are going to win a World Series in the next five years or something. Yeah. And it's never spot on. We never nailed it. And so I'm envisioning now hundreds of episodes, hence someone saying, I was just listening back to episode 2080. Right. And they both wrote off the Rockies and said, yeah. there's no way they're going to be first. And then what do you know? Rockies, uh, 2024 or 2025 world champions or something like that. So it probably it wouldn't be our our worst prediction. But yeah, I don't see any reason not to say Rockies. Yeah, a lot can happen. A lot can happen uh, in a short period of time in baseball, you know. Yeah. But um, there's a lot of work to be done, I think, organizationally with Colorado. And they'll just forever have to overcome the fact that they play baseball on the moon, you know. And so it would take some real doing, even if, 
you were to transplant, and we've talked about this as a topic before, like even if you were to just wholesale lift a, a front office um, that we think of as being sort of further along in its use of analytics than the Rockies are, you still have the natural barrier of the, you know, the Rockies themselves, as it were. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing is that the, the Rockies are the only one of these teams that is currently bad, Right. right. Uh, all of these others were winning teams, right? The Padres right. just barely, <laughs> barely yeah. crossed that threshold of winning team and had right. the underlying numbers of a much better team. And then right. the other three were either playoff teams or, or the closest call to a, yeah. a playoff team. So that's why the Rockies are in a tier of their own. That's one of the reasons why the Rockies are clearly not the answer. But then how do we pick among these other four. It does because, get harder. Yeah, yeah, it does, because not exactly super teams among them, but all kind of around the same sort of neighborhood-ish in terms of 2023 results. Yeah, and I think that if you had asked me about this six months ago, well, my answer would have been the Padres with a, you mm -hmm. know, like with a bullet, right, because of where they were in terms of their roster and also because of what I perceived to be a real willingness and capacity on the part of that ownership group to just spend as much money as they needed to to try to keep up with um, some of the bigger market clubs. And I think we're in a spot now where we know that they had to borrow money to cover some of their operating expenses. We don't really know where the RSN piece of it fits into that picture. That wasn't a big part of Ken and Evans reporting on that question, but it's, I, I think that their desire and willingness to spend is probably unchanged, but I, I think that we kind of have to see where the dust settles in terms of San Diego's capacity to do that to the same degree. And I, I don't mean that in a woe is me way. They just have this very strange situation that developed quite suddenly with their you know, regional sports network and MLB has said they're going to backstop all of those teams and they have backstopped all of those teams and they recovered some money from Bally and, uh, you know, but it is a more fluid situation than I think we would have assumed it to be even mm -hmm. a couple of months ago. Right. So that puts them in a different spot than I would have had them potentially. I don't know. It's really, that's quite tricky. I think maybe I would put the Brewers as Above the Rockies, certainly, but the the fourth team in that tier, if only because they are also seemingly embarking on a period of transition within the club, not just because of whatever is going to end up going on with Council and with Stearns' departure. But as we talked about, there's work to be done on this roster and even in their rotation, which has previously been such a strength for them, you know, they have this weird combination of um, injury and then looming free agency yeah. for some of their biggest names. So, and they are, they've also constrained themselves from a budget perspective. So that combination maybe puts them fourth for me, but then picking them, you know, betwixt and between the Mariners, the Padres and the Rays is tricky because, well, I don't need to say more about the Mariners <laughs> than I've already said a lot. I did a really good job of sticking to my word and not talking about them after Jerry had his little yeah. gaffe. Well, they weren't in the playoffs, which helped. <laughs> right. But, you know, why would you, you know, don't issue a challenge, Ben, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> I can be self-aware on occasion. It does happen. Um Tampa, the thing that we would say in their favor, right, is that they um, have this very good demonstrated ability to 
sort of maximize limited resources through scouting, through development, through the machinations of their front office. They also are budget constrained. They have to grapple with the reality of the fact that they are in all likelihood a, a Wander Franco-less organization going forward. And they play in an incredibly competitive division. And so when you think about how are they going to be able to stack up against, you know, a Toronto, a Baltimore, at some point, you know, you imagine that the Yankees and the Red Sox will be good again. They just have a very hard sort of road to hoe in terms of securing a division title and potentially a first round bye, which is meaningful in the playoffs. And, you know, they've had like these early exits from postseason play lately that I think are in some respects due to the vagaries of the postseason, but in other respects, like kind of illuminate something about the way that they have constructed their rosters uh, and they have their own injury concerns to deal with. So there's like a lot of push and pull there. Yeah. Do you have Rays thoughts before I... <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that the Rays would be at the top of my board probably yeah. just because they're perennially contending and that, yeah. that's what this comes down to. I'm not predicting who's going to have the greatest postseason success. So it's really just about qualifying for the playoffs and the Rays do that pretty consistently. Yep. It's a tough division or is usually a pretty tough division, but they are among the best teams in it. So yep. Yeah, I don't see how you could not. And they have young players in a farm system, even if they yeah. are without Wander Franco. They've just yeah. still got a ton of talent. So it gets tougher after that. I think the Rays would be clear number one for me. Rockies would be clear last. And then the other three kind of in a jumble. Yeah. Yeah. The Brewers have been the most consistent playoff team of the three over the past several seasons but i don't know if you can count on that continuing yeah so and then yeah padres also have prominent free agents and potentially a soto trade etc so yeah i'm gonna go raise Mariners. Wow. (laughs) The Mariners haven't even made a World Series, so that would be a nice hurdle for them to clear. They're the one team that hasn't even (laughs) won a pennant. So I'm going to be optimistic and and say, (laughs) say, Rays, Mariners. Uh, Man, I want to say Padres, (laughs) but I don't know. Padres, Brewers, Rockies, I guess. Sure. Padres and Brewers are pretty much a toss-up for me. I love your Mariners optimism, Ben. Mm-hmm. What a what a treat that is. <laughs> I find myself in a spot where I don't quite know what to think of them right now, honestly. I wonder a lot about like Jerry DePoto's capacity for shame. You know, I've been thinking about that specific question a lot in the last 24 hours because like there's a version of the aftermath of the foot in mouthist comment that a front office executive has made in quite a while where um, they look around and go, we got to, we got to do something about this. We just got to do something. And then there's um, how these things normally go. <laughs> so, like, I've been just thinking about, like, shame and mm-hmm. our capacity to feel it mm-hmm. and how good or bad it might be. Um, so that's what I'll say about the Mariners. Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. It's going to be um, it's going to be fascinating to watch. Like, does the another team in your division 
winning literally the World Series when you could have been the division winner instead of the team they defeated on their way there had a couple of things gone differently? Like, does that motivate you? Or do you look at that and say, ah, this is also random. We're just going to run it back. You know, there's like, there are a couple of different ways that 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 can go. Mm -hmm. So those are some thoughts that I have um, about those teams. I guess I'd pick Tampa, but I do think that like, it's not a given, but none of these are given. So what do you, what do you do except say, yeah, this is historically in the last little bit been the best of these clubs. So, mm-hmm. well, you know, as Chris points out in his piece, all four of the non-Rockies teams had better odds of winning one this year than the Rangers did, according to Fangraph's preseason. Mm. So anything is possible. <laughs> and as recently as late September, the Rays, Brewers, and Mariners all had better odds of winning the World Series than the Rangers did. So... <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. Um, I wonder if uh, if that group will look back on the last week of the season and think about it often in the years to come. Mm-hmm. I do wonder that. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. It's weird to know what like wakes people up at three in the morning when you don't know them well, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, that feels that feels intimate. During the postseason, Tori Lovello talked about how some of the um, umpiring calls and results of things kind of woke him up mm-hmm. at like three in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I was like, it's weird to know that, Tori. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, I don't, we're not, you know, we don't exchange Christmas cards, so that's a weird thing to know about someone. Yeah. But here we are. <laughs> well, it doesn't look like Chris comes down clearly on a favorite. He does rule out the Rockies right away. Yeah. <laughs> but doesn't rule them out winning a World Series, but rules them out as the, as the best the most, team to pick here. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, like so many things can happen. Mm-hmm. Um the world is full of infinite possibility. Yeah, if I were doing other other Ben's prediction method of right. of uh, predicting things that I think are maybe more likely than the consensus, even if, if I don't yeah. think they're the likeliest outcome, yes. then I might say I'm going to go with the Rockies because uh, I think it's possible, and uh, other people might think it's impossible, and it's entertaining, and it's thought provoking, and also if they somehow did win the World Series, I would look very smart, right? But but I can right. only be the Ben I am, and so I will not say the Rockies, but looks like uh, Chris says, if I'd written this piece last winter, I would have expected the Padres to be the most likely to end sure. their franchise-long slump. If I'd written it in June, I would have sworn it would be the Rays. But the truth is, we're in an era in which the door could be open for any of these teams to win their first Rockies fans keep the faith. So, mm. yeah, let us know what you all think, and at some point, we will know, hopefully, how wrong we were or how right we were. I will look on yeah. the bright side. But it was uh, good news for you, predictions-wise, actually. Chris Hanel updated the Effectively Wild I preseason prediction floored. game, as you probably saw. And I, you, yeah, you I predicted did. that a team would win its its first championship of, of the franchise. And that evidently catapulted you into the lead in the still-not-yet-final preseason predictions game i am floored i am flummoxed i am uh, just really quite shocked when it comes down to it because uh i was doing very poorly in the prediction game up until like i think even just a month or two ago Mm -hmm. if i managed to have won 
the minor league free agent draft, and the prediction game Oof. in one year. Yeah, the year of Meg. Do I just retire? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, am I just done? Mm-hmm. I don't know what to say about that, you know? Because yeah. it seems like uh, I can't believe it, really. Mm-hmm. Preemptive, possibly premature. Congratulations on your double victory. At least your single victory. Yeah, well, we know I won the minor league free agent draft, yes. which I and I don't say this to um, offend the prediction game, but like that that one was quite um, important to me, um, yes. and I feel quite gratified. I would have been happy to just place well, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, man, those Rangers way mm-hmm. to way to go. So yeah, yeah, yeah. One more time, I will return to the topic of playoff randomness before we hopefully leave that behind for a while. Very eager not to talk about playoff format fretting for a while, but Joe Sheehan just wrote about this in his excellent newsletter, and I thought he made a good point, framed things in a way that I guess we had potentially touched on, but maybe hadn't put it explicitly in these terms. So he postulates here that The main reason that everyone has been so up in arms about the playoff format this past postseason and last postseason was uh, partly just the regular randomness of baseball coupled with lots of off days and nothing to talk about except uh, who was upset. But I think he makes a, a good point here that really... It's what he calls the the second chance problem. So he thinks that this has a lot to do with the the direct confrontation with the randomness of the playoffs that happens when a team that finished behind another team in the same division then upsets that team in the playoffs because that really just throws it right into your face, right? You just had this six-month-long regular season where you battled it out to decide who was the superior team and who Mm -hmm. finished ahead of whom. And then next thing you know, there's a short series and the team that was worse over the long haul emerges victorious and just wipes away everything that happened in that whole season you had just invested all your time and attention in. And that really hammers home that this is weird, that this is random. What are we doing here? This is fluky and maybe it shouldn't work this way. So this second chance issue that he identifies here, as he points out, that specifically has only become an issue really recently Mm. because Obviously, before you had expanded playoffs, you just you won your league, you were the right. champion. <laughs> or later when there was just a World Series, you won your league and you got to play for the overall championship between leagues. Uh, maybe that's why they still call the regular season the championship season, even yeah. though it's been so de-emphasized. Right? I think but, that's exactly why, Ben. So, I think that's so precisely why. In 94, or really 95, because there were no playoffs in 94, we had second place teams getting another chance for the first time. Right. So you could finish behind another team. You didn't have to be a first place finisher. You could still qualify for the playoffs with wild cards. However, at that point, there were a couple big differences. The first is that home field advantage was preset as opposed to being determined by your record, but also 
there was a a barrier in place that prevented the second chance issue from presenting itself right away because at first a wild card team could not play a team in its own division in the first round mm. so as early as 1997 the marlins won the wild card that year they finished behind the braves and then miami played the giants right. in the first round rather than the top seeded right. Braves, and that was really an acknowledgement by MLB that this second chance issue was an issue, right? That they built that into the structure from the start. That was sort of a tacit acknowledgement that this would be bad if you finished behind a team and then immediately you got to play that team and potentially beat that team right away. So they built in some protection there to avoid that problem. And I guess that year, those Marlins, who were nine games worse than the Braves in the regular season, they won four out of six over those Braves to win the NL pennant and then the World Series. So the the second chance issue reared its head that year, but not immediately. You at least had to win another round before that became an issue. Then in 1998, they eliminated the preset home field, but still kept the rule about the first round matchups. So the Red Sox won the AL wild card after finishing way behind the 114 win Yankees and they didn't play the Yankees. They played the then Indians, the number two seed in the AL. And then in 99, both wild cards were shifted away from the intra-division foes in the first round in 2003-2. So that principle that teams from the same division couldn't meet in the division series, which I I guess is kind of counterintuitive, but but given the name, but if you were a division rival, you couldn't play another division rival in the division series through the entire eight-team playoff format. But then we got the wildcard play-in game. And at that point... The center could not hold. They could not keep this rule, this prohibition, because you couldn't know who the number four seed would be until that wildcard play-in game was played, and they couldn't just hold up the entire scheduling process until that game was decided. So they had to acquiesce to this. And so in 2012, the Orioles beat the Rangers in the wildcard game. They went on to play the Yankees in the division series. From 2012 through 2019, there were six intra-divisional division series matchups. However, MLB kind of lucked out during those years because the division champion won five of the six. And the only exception where the inferior team beat a superior regular season division rival was the 2015 Cubs, and they won 97 games. So they were still a, a pretty good team. It didn't feel super fluky. And so... Essentially, for years, MLB said, we're not going to allow this. And then they said, okay, we have to allow this now. But it just didn't really come up. It didn't become a problem. And then we got to 2022 and 2023. And suddenly, big issue, right? So last year, the Braves finished way ahead of the Phillies. And then they lost three of four to the Phillies and were eliminated. And then the Dodgers finished way ahead of the Padres, but they lost three of four to the Padres and they were eliminated. And then this year, the Braves finished way ahead of the Phillies and then they lost three of four to the Phillies and they were gone. And then the Dodgers finished way ahead of the Diamondbacks and they lost three straight to the Diamondbacks and 
the Dodgers were done too. So everyone's been saying, is it scheduling? Is it these teams are rusty? Is it something else? But Joe argues, and, and I find it pretty convincing, that the reason this seems so egregious, that it has really caused so much existential strife and questioning of, of whether we need to do something about the playoff format, is because even though the playoffs were a crapshoot and we were exposed to that concept, yeah. we were not really confronted with this second chance issue that yeah. just made it that more glaring. And now we have for two straight winters. So I, I think that holds water for me. Yeah, I think that that is a, a keen insight. I don't know. It just suggests that, like, we want to be tricked a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I think that when you're confronted with the possibility of a, a division rival potentially being the one to knock you out and quick... It, something about that's like, didn't I just deal with you? Like, right. you know, and so I, I do think that having a greater sense of remove there has a meaningful impact on your sort of sense of the thing. Because even in an era like this, where you are now playing your division rivals a little less often than you did, and you're seeing your team play against every team every year. And so you have you know, even if it's not a highly refined sense, you have some sense of these clubs that you might face in the postseason. There is something, I think, uniquely chancy that you feel as a fan when you're and you see your team playing a division rival that you have a lot of familiarity with. And you might even have particular memories of like, oh, my gosh, you remember the last time we saw these guys and that guy did that thing and then we lost. Mm -hmm. And so I, I do think it, it kind of puts you at an unease very quickly. Whereas if you didn't have to see those guys, you'd be like, oh, well, the Marlins, we're not going to yeah. suffer any ill fate at the hands of the Marlins. We didn't ever see those guys, you know. Yeah, we already dealt with them. Yeah. yeah. Stay, stay down. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They have the impertinence to challenge us once again and, and Maybe, perhaps yeah. top mm. us even. So that kind of clarified things for me. I think Joe has put his finger on something there and identified an issue. Yeah. The problem is he does not have a solution yeah. <laughs> to this problem. And in fact, he suggests that it could become worse sure. with future expansions to the playoff format. Right. Because if, if we expand to 14 playoff teams, then you're probably going to get some sub 500 teams sneaking in there. And especially if we say expand the league as a whole and then you get 16 teams in there then that would be kind of commonplace, right? And so sometimes those teams would be matched up with teams that trounce them mm. for the first six months of the season. And sometimes they will beat those teams over a, yeah. a best of three or a best of five or whatever it is. So I don't know hmm. what to do about that because uh, you could talk about reseeding and maybe that yes. helps a little bit, but sure. you're still going to get this yeah. second chance issue. and. Yep. As Joe says, it's not quite as cute and endearing when you have that sort of upset in MLB after playing 162 right. games to get there yeah. as it is in whatever, March Madness or, or some other sport where right. there are fewer games or there's just less emphasis historically on the regular season. I think that that is really an underrated piece of all this. And maybe it's a, a different way of saying something that we've um, hit on before, which is that... 
when you have such a robust regular season, we do settle into this idea that we have a really good sense by the end of the year of who is good and who is bad, and that that is a meaningful answer, that it is backed up by you know, months and months and months of everyday play. Whereas like, you know, my experience of um, being a football fan, for instance, you feel the in-season variance, I think, much more acutely when you're only looking at a season that lasts, you know, it lasts over a period of months, but is, you know, a much shorter, you know, fewer than 20 games. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you're just much more keenly aware of the role that, sort of chance and bad hops can kind of play in the fate of your team. And I think it does put you in a mindset to accept that randomness much more willingly once you get to postseason play. You know, we are... We are so grounded in not certainty, but confidence in terms of our pronouncements about, you know, what it all means when it comes to the baseball regular season. And like, I think that there are definitely teams in, say, the NFL where you're like, that's a really good football team. But a common sort of thread of commentary in a lot of modern football analysis is like, you know, you got a lot of, you got a lot of, hmm, don't know if they're good teams, right? Mm-hmm. And a couple of bounces, you know, that one fluky thing that happened, that goes a different way. And suddenly, yeah. you know, bing, and, bang, and boom. And sometimes I hear football fans sound frustrated by the fact that they can't tell which teams are good. Yes. <laughs> and sometimes they are energized by that. They're intrigued by sure. that because oh, yeah. uh, it's anyone's game, right? Anyone's so I don't game. I don't know whether that's better. I kind of like that we have the regular season that does sort of separate the wheat from the chaff, except oh, yeah. then the the chaff just comes right back again and beats the wheat. Hopefully I have the, the right parts of the, those yeah, crops the in the right of order. <laughs> we're not farmers, you know. No, we're I think not. people I think people know that about us. They're they forgiving. definitely do now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they were confused about our farmer status previously, no, Ben. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, like it can be quite frustrating to sit there and be like, I've just spent weeks and weeks of my life watching this stupid Seahawks team, and I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. And we can say with greater confidence now um, than we could even a couple of years ago, because you know the the NFL is undergoing its own sort of stats revolution, um, for good or for ill. But I do think that people, even as we are able to say, like, that team is really good, that team is less good, this team is, you know, hyper-efficient on third down, this team has a great red zone offense, even within that, there is still this, like, patina of, but you know how much weird crap happens in football every week, and then, you know, sometimes it can diverge pretty profoundly from, that team is good, but they're on the outside looking in when it comes to the playoff picture, so... I think that um, that plays a that's a big part of it. I really do mm-hmm. think that it's a big part of it. Yep. Well, that post by Joe is not behind the paywall. You can read it in its entirety at joshian.com. Want to give it a plug because I cite him often and enjoy yeah. his work. Yeah. And you can subscribe at joshian.com as well. But I will link to that post for you to peruse on the show page. So the off season has begun. It has. Yeah. The drumbeat of transactions has uh, already started. Some signings, some extensions, and so forth. There were just a few minor items, and maybe not so minor items, Mm. that I flagged so far. First, remember we answered a listener email recently about whether maybe Clayton Kershaw should start later next season. 
maybe maybe he should only pitch half a season. Maybe he yeah. should sit out the first half or so, and and then he could avoid injury and and maybe would yeah. be less fatigued when the playoffs yeah. rolled around. Yeah. And it, it turns out. He was yeah. listening, and he said, that sounds like a great idea, and oh. I will immediately undergo shoulder surgery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so apparently he had to do that. Yeah. It wasn't, uh, I guess, an elective procedure. He has had yeah. shoulder surgery, and he says he is hopeful to return to play at some point next summer. Yeah, this stinks, you know? It does yeah. It does stink. I, I, you said there's been a couple of transactions. It's been very Dodgers heavy, actually. Yeah. So we'll have a couple more to talk about. But I, I don't think that this is particularly surprising. Perhaps the extent of of the surgery and the duration of his absence is maybe longer than I was anticipating. But he was so obviously compromised toward the end yeah. of the season and certainly in the postseason that it seemed all but certain that he would need some sort of you know, work or cleanup done to be able to pitch next year. But, you know, we're in such a weird spot with him because there's the reality of the injury and what that might mean for his ability to bounce back. And then there's the extent to which he has sort of artificially constricted his own market, right? It seems like he's Mm -hmm. really only interested in continuing to pitch for the Dodgers, potentially pitch for the Rangers, Mm -hmm. and how those things sort of interact with one another like, I don't want to say that we've seen the last of Clayton Kershaw. I certainly hope that's not true because that would be a really down note for his career to go out on considering how wonderful it's been. But you do got to wonder, like, what what does next year really look like? What is the ceiling on what he might be able to contribute? So, uh, Ben, you know, yeah. what, a, what a Friday news dump, as it were. Yep. Yeah, right. So... Obviously, it doesn't really affect uh, his uh, career's uh, perception or anything no. like that. He, he's he's a legend. <laughs> if anything, I mean, we talked about this when we talked about his playoff history yeah. and just how do you hold it against him when he's clearly not himself? Like, right. it's, it's pretty obviously a physical issue. It obviously right. was in, in that case, at least. And so you add it to the pile of Clayton Kershaw can't pitch in the postseason. But really, it's Clayton Kershaw can't pitch with a at shoulder all. that he needs to have surgery yeah. on, right? Yeah. So, so all you can do is say, maybe you can fault him for a lack of endurance and for a tendency not to be at his best when October rolls around because health is a skill and it is important to be an ace when your team is playing playoff games as well yeah. as during the regular season. So if he has had some greater tendency to break down and wear down and be fatigued when October rolls around, then you could hold that against him. But I would rather hold that against him than to suggest that it's some sort of psychological failing. Yeah, or skill issue. Yeah. If anything, the fact that that he's having shoulder surgery probably establishes that, at least when it comes to 2023. Oh, yeah. But yeah, I, you would figure, if anything, maybe it makes it more likely that he returns to the Dodgers. Yeah. Not that the odds were ever great that he was going to go he's anywhere. He's going to do anything else, yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> maybe the fact that the Rangers just won a World Series uh, might have made them a little more appealing, but... Can't imagine that the Dodgers would ever not offer him a deal unless it got to the point where he was so compromised that he was pitching like Felix was at the end of his tenure with the Mariners, right? Wow, 
Got sorry, whacked sorry out to of absolutely nowhere with that one. My goodness. <laughs> Apologies. <laughs> but uh, Clayton Kershaw, pre-shoulder surgery, was still including oh, yeah. one of the best pitchers in baseball. Yep. So he was uh, going to get an offer to come back, yes. and he probably still will. I wonder whether he will want to sign before he has clarity on how his rehab is going and how right. he's feeling because he has suggested in prior off seasons that he wanted to take some time and see how his body was feeling and everything right. and maybe even more so now. So he's he's not in a position where he needs security, right? Like he's not one of these players who's, I need to sign a two-year make good deal and, and right. get the security while I rehab so that I could, you know, maybe the team will, will get me at a, a sweetheart deal in the second year if they give me some security this year. He's Clayton Kershaw, so he doesn't, doesn't really need that sort of arrangement. So I, I wonder whether he will want the certainty and stability or, or whether he'll just say, let's see how it goes and, and how the Dodgers are doing then and right. how other teams are doing. And it, it would give him the freedom and the flexibility to assess sure. the season that, yeah. that he would have had if this had been purely a, I feel like sitting out half the yeah. season and, and seeing how I feel. It's interesting, right? Because on the one hand, like he's never, so he doesn't need the money, right? Like that piece of it is sort of, he's he's in a very secure, I would imagine, in his life spot, right? And so I suspect that what will dictate where he goes is like who, you know, the combination of do they want me, but also like where do I feel like I am going to be the most useful? I just really struggle to think of him in like a, a more mercenary kind of role where he looks around come May and says, you know, who really needs some help right now is the Baltimore Orioles. Just to like pick a, you know, team like purely at random that is good, but might need some starting pitching help, just like one and mm -hmm. it's occupying my mind space. So I, I struggled to think of him in that role, which, you know, if he came to occupy it, I wouldn't knock him for like, if this is his kind of last hurrah, he should go where it feels like he can, you know, be a part of something. Mm -hmm. um, but because he doesn't need, you know, he's not like signing his first free agent deal or anything like that. I almost wonder if that makes him more likely to sign and re-sign with L.A. sooner because he's like, this is where I just, why are we going to mess with other stuff? Like, this is where I belong. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And I wonder if there are any implications about the rehab process and right. facilities he say, can use. Yeah, people he's yeah. comfortable working with. Yeah, yeah. where it's like, I want to be, you know, if he has confidence in the Dodgers to sort of shepherd his recovery along um, and isn't, you know, is really just concerned with being in the best possible shape he can be when he returns. Maybe he just says, like, I know these guys, they know me, they know my shoulder they know my arm you know i'm just gonna get this done and i could also see you know him sort of returning the favors may be too strong but you know we remember there have been times where he has been in a position to be a free agent and potentially get tagged with a qualifying offer and they basically elected not to do that so that he could have maximum flexibility in his signing and maybe he'll say we have an understanding about where I'm going to go, but maybe it's useful to you from a payroll perspective to not have even a small deal on the books. So I'm going to sit this one out until it's sort of necessary for us to get it done. I don't know. Like there mm -hmm. are a lot of ways that that could go. I think quite often there is such a, a business like 
kind of vibe to this stuff. It can be so transactional. And there are, I think, very few cases where you can point to both a player and an organization and say they are endeavoring to do something different between them. They have other considerations that are maybe not as important as the the money piece or the competitive fit, but are clearly part of that conversation in a very real way, in a way that they often aren't with other teams and clubs. But I think Kershaw falls into that sort of realm where it's like, this is our dude, this is a franchise icon, this is our future Hall of Famer, and we have a, a real, an actual relationship that sort of moves beyond just player and organization. So it'll be mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see sort of how they make that all fit, but I will be, I'm not going to make a bet because the last time people did that, they had to bike to Chicago and mm-hmm. Ben, I'll <laughs> simply just like expire if I have to do that. But, um, yeah. but I would be very surprised if he, I would have greater confidence that he would retire before he'd end up wearing another team's uniform. But yeah, I could maybe imagine him doing the mercenary thing if he had never won a world series right. and, and really just wanted to get one, except that the Dodgers are almost always your your safest bet to be yeah. the favorite when the season starts so yeah that or always, houston and yeah so it's, that it's, i have a very hard time seeing <laughs> yeah true <laughs> but but maybe if he's like man i gotta get this playoff monkey off my back again because yeah. it i got it off and now it's back on there a little bit yeah. so so maybe then but again that's contingent on the dodgers not looking like a playoff team midseason, yeah. which that would be surprising. So monkeys, what scamps? And mm-hmm. you know, based on some of their other um, moves, uh, they are going to need starting pitching. So what a transition, Ben! <laughs> very, very good. Yeah, they, very, very they, good. They decided they did not want to be back in the Lance Lynn business, at least not at that price point, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. I was. Were you? I was a little surprised. I wasn't hugely surprised because um, while he was better, he was not what we might call good in mm-hmm. the the Dodgers run. But I guess I maybe thought that they would just exercise their club option so that they were like, you know, who's a live body with an arm attached? Lance Lynn, he's in our <laughs> uniform. So, but, right. uh, you know, I know that they have um, some payroll. This might be an off season where every team that spends money wants to maximize its payroll flexibility as much as possible in pursuit of Otani. Um, mm-hmm. So perhaps I shouldn't have been surprised after all, Ben. Maybe I mm-hmm. should have expected it, you know? You yeah. know? Yeah, it it takes me a little while to really ramp up to caring about the Dodgers <laughs> declining an option on Lance Lynn or uh, even yeah. even the Dodgers signing Max Muncy to a two-year yeah. extension, which is notable I news. I just assumed that they were going to do that, you know? Yeah, right. And it's even though the World Series was, was not adrenaline-inducing still, it just takes me a little while to get back in the mindset of, sure. okay, I got to care about these things that will yeah. affect – championship probability by points, you know, oh, oh, whatever, right? As opposed to every game is swinging that significantly. It's just the stakes are suddenly lower. Although if you root for a team that didn't make the playoffs or that's been out of it for a while, you're probably raring to go. You're like, hey, I've been waiting for them to conclude that October business so that we could get down to the business of building our team again. So, yeah. So that and and, uh, Joe Jimenez signing with Atlanta and uh, donating his his one percent to the Braves Foundation, one of the the great mysteries of the sport. The- I, can I say something? And mm-hmm. I want to before I say it, I want to be very.
very clear how strongly I am kidding. I want to be <laughs> very, very, very clear because yeah. I'm about to use words in sequence that were I not kidding, were it suggestive of knowing something, would be very alarming. But are we okay. sure that the Braves Foundation isn't like a criminal syndicate of some kind? <laughs> I'm not sure because I'm not sure what it is. So I, I cannot are, confirm or deny or refute that. Are the Atlanta Braves made? Are they, in fact, yeah. is this protection money that is being, it's not a funny thing to joke about, but it is a curious, yeah. I mean, I just, if for no other reason, as an aside, than if I were a professional athlete with the financial resources of a professional athlete, like, you know, no offense to the Braves Foundation, but I, I might want to direct my own charitable endeavors. You know, I might want to have my own say in what those are. And who knows if they'd be the same as those of the Braves Foundation. You just wouldn't. Mm -hmm. You don't know, Ben. I don't know. What do they what do those folks get up to? Apart yeah, from potentially no, I don't know. Being a criminal I, and syndicate? And Craig Calcaterra pointed out, I think that there's some precedent for team to be up to shenanigans with those charitable funds. Granted, Frank McCourt during his time with the Dodgers. So, so he was just up to shenanigans writ large. Yes, and this generally. Was one yeah, this was yeah. one manifestation of the shenanigans. Yeah, that was one of the, the shenanigans. It was a one shenanigan. Shenanigans. Guy, shenanigans. Uh, are they like, um, is it like mushrooms, shenanigans, um, mushroom shenanigans? Um, but yeah, you never know, right? I, I always wonder, maybe this has been written about, but do they take the 1% off the top after they agree to the, like, is it priced in? Do they agree on the terms and then they oh, say, hey, question. we want to put in our press release that, that you gave 1% to the British Foundation, so we will tack on 1%? Or is it like you negotiate terms and then they spring it on you? Like, hey, by the way, like some kind of convenience charge when you <laughs> buy tickets on Ticketmaster or something? Got to get the Swifties <laughs> going after the Atlanta Braves. Um, yeah. I I wonder, well, first of all, no one could in any kind of good faith act surprised at this point. Like if you are signing a contract right. extension or a new deal with Atlanta and you're like, what do you mean there's a surcharge? They'd be like, well, haven't you been reading our press releases? It mm -hmm. did feel like the offseason had really started when um, the Braves announced their own contract, you know, mm -hmm. that I was like, oh, we're back. You know, it's time. Mm -hmm. It's November yeah. now. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, also, I I kind of wonder about like at what point does it come up in the process yes but then also the the apparent unanimity of yes. it and uh, granted the the Braves have managed to convince so many of their players to sign extensions in the first place but then you'd think someone would opt right. out it's it's like when you're checking out at the grocery store or something and it's like do you want to donate x whatever it is to to some worthy cause you know uh -huh. and and maybe you usually do it because you support the cause or you just feel the shame that you were wondering whether Jerry Depoto feels <laughs> right but, oh, but but I don't it, I don't I don't up I don't round up. Uh, yeah, I mean that's okay, right? So, so you would think I do other stuff. I don't need yeah, Safeway to help me. Exactly, you know, right. Direct that's my, the thing. My yeah, people, fifty cents. Yeah, people have their own charities, and you you yeah. kind of feel guilty about not donating. But it's like, no, I look, I do all these other things. But yeah. <laughs> but but you you can't prove it to that person. It's like, no, I don't want to add fifty cents to help orphans or whatever. It's like here are here are all my charitable donations. I'm going to bring all my receipts next time. I'm going to show you just how <laughs> altruistic. And, uh, and, and helpful to society I am. 
I, I would just invite you to consider that, um, and look, a lot of different kinds of folks work in um, in grocery change, but the look of complete indifference that I am often <laughs> met with by the 18-year-old who's checking me out at Sprouts yeah. can't be overstated. So I, yes. I, I think you can... I think you can let that one go. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, I just invite you to let it go if you want. That's to. probably true. Yes, yeah. they couldn't care less. I'm sure, and yeah. and I don't know what the rate of giving at those prompts right? is typically. Anyway, yeah. but, anyway, but yes, I, there's got to be someone who says no at some point, unless it's just added on. Unless right. it's just, hey, we're going to do this because it'll it make us feel good or it'll make us look good that we're getting our players to do this, but really it's just us chipping in and making it look like we we took it out of your cut or something. So yeah, I want to know more about the mechanics of that. But but more interested in that in than I am in the fact that Joe Jimenez signed a three-year contract for yeah. $26 million and that the Braves Foundation gets 1% of that. Although the, the one interesting thing about that that I saw was Craig Calcaterra pointed out that he will sign he will make now more than Ozzy Albies could possibly make over those next three years. Yikes. Joe, Joe Jimenez, who is he had a pretty good year for a reliever. Yeah, but, no, you know, that's a that's a an Ozzy Albies motivated yikes and not a Joe yes, Jimenez motivated yeah. yikes. So so Jimenez twenty six million over the next three years. Ozzy Albies guaranteed eighteen million and can at most make twenty one million. Wow. So, yeah, just the latest illustration. Did Ozzy Albies also have to give 1% to the Brave Foundation? Because they, they should waive that for him. I, I am so glad you asked. It appears that Ozzy Albies has his own foundation, and this is part of the confusion. It's like, are all of these, are they like laying claim to other work that these guys are doing? But if you look at the Atlanta Braves Foundation 2022 Community Impact, this is just on their website, it's like 13,000 servings of fruit will be produced annually from community orchards planted through the pitch in for the planet. 45,000 pounds of fresh produce distributed through the home plate project. Three dogs found their forever <laughs> home through dog days of summer at Truist Park in partnership with the Ozzy Albies Foundation and Lifeline Animal Project. And I'm here to ask, only three dogs? You're only, <laughs> only three? That seems like that seems like a typo. It's like only three dogs found their forever home? Just three? Yeah. That's Someone's, not enough dogs. No, it doesn't seem like the greatest utilitarian return on investment there. But but the Braves just just unanimously philanthropic. I'd yeah. love for if anyone has has combed through all of the press releases to see if there's anyone who has not elected to do this. Are there any holdouts? And if not, then then what kind of threats are they holding over these guys' heads? How does this work? I need to know more. Anyway, those were some transactions and injury-related news. There was also one bit of news about not a transaction, but a bit of a change on the depth chart for the Houston Astros at catcher. I was kind of amused to see the headline at MLB Trade Rumors, Yiner Diaz to be Astros' primary catcher in 2024. <laughs> so Astros GM Dana Brown said that Diaz will be the main guy next year. <laughs> That's a please stop asking me about this announcement. <laughs> and this is also maybe a Dusty Baker retired and, announcement, yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> Would yeah. this have happened if Dusty had not retired? And granted, it 
Dusty was pinch hitting for Maldonado on occasion in on the playoffs occasion. there, but but would he have uh, anointed Yiner Diaz as the first string catcher at this point if he had stuck around? kind of doubt it so <laughs> that that seems like uh yeah we're making a change at manager and thus we are also making a change at catcher thanks for your contributions martin but we do need some modicum of yeah. offense especially if really. we're not going to get really Any. great defense anymore yeah i am unsurprised by that wait i want to return to the jimenez thing just because mm-hmm. i love the reliever free agent market mm-hmm. i love it so much because it is a place where the thing I'd say, I don't, I'm not going to call it an overpay, but like they very routinely exceed our expectations in that space, right? Mm-hmm. In a, in a way that I find so fascinating because reliever performance can be so volatile. And yet it is a place where teams often exceed what the like straight, like dollars per war kind of calculus would perhaps lead you to expect them to do. And I just find that fascinating, Ben. I just find that so fascinating. And like, they only do it. It's not like every reliever gets a deal like that, but like, if you have had a pretty consistent, okay time, you might make some okay uh, money as Mm -hmm. a a free agent reliever. And I just find it very fascinating. So I just want to like, you know, shout out that free agent market because it can feel very you know especially in a year like this where the expectation the consensus is that it's going to be kind of blah and Mm -hmm. very slow going um this might be a a very slow developing market it's just like it's nice to have a little bit of something to to think about and and wonder so there Mm -hmm. you go that's me thinking about relievers and the last little bit of news is that Nelson Cruz is retiring. Not a yeah. shocker. He is doing a little mini retirement tour. I love in this so much. Lido, right? Yes. He is. Uh, he's visiting every every city, right? Yeah. Playing every team and and yes. and taking a bow one last time. I think it's wonderful that he has Leadom to sort of do this tour in. It's nice that he is doing that for fans in the DR. And uh, boy, did I enjoy watching that guy hit for a really long time. And uh, from everyone I know who has covered him in various spots, like just, uh, you know, a good, a good egg. Um, Mm -hmm. What a career, you know, like an interesting career, at times fraught career, right? Like he did have the PED thing, but right. No one really cares about that. Like Nelson Cruz isn't a Hall of Famer, but like he was quite, quite good for a long time. And I think particularly since um, he obviously took being a mentor seriously, trying to make sure that younger guys were treated well was a thing he took seriously. And then obviously his charitable efforts, particularly in the DR, like just, uh, you know, that's a good, that's a good egg we think. So Mm -hmm. that's nice. And I hope he gets to do something like fun and nap Mm -hmm. as much as he wants. Oh yeah. Right. No constraints on his napping. No, (laughs) no limits. No limits. I was going to ask you, yeah, if if you think he is maybe the player who has put his PD suspension behind him most just like erased yes. it almost from, from people's memories. And, yeah. and I guess there may be more obscure players who people just sure. don't remember at all and right. they wouldn't even remember that that guy got popped at some point just because right. he's so unnotable. But for a player of Nelson Cruz's caliber – 
I wonder if there's anyone because I saw some kind of career encapsulations of him written in various right. places that just didn't even mention, mention it. it. You know, it's it's not in the first few paragraphs really of his right. baseball obit. And maybe it's partly that, yeah, he's not going to be someone who gets serious Hall of Fame consideration. Right. So it, it's not going to exclude him from Cooperstown or anything. And then maybe it's also just that that was a long time ago, right? What, what, what year was it that he got suspended? It was it was quite a while because he— 13, right? Wasn't it 2013? That sounds right. Yeah. So it's it's been a full decade. Right. And just the fact that he played for so long and he's 43 years old now, so he's kind of put it in the rearview mirror. And also, I guess, the fact that he came back and was just as productive, if not more so, after the suspension, which in a way, I guess you, you could have said would have increased suspicion that he continued right. to be so productive at such an advanced age with a PD suspension in his past, but it seemed like more so people kind of concluded, well, I guess it wasn't the PEDs because he's still really good or maybe just because he uh, seems to be a good guy otherwise and was a good clubhouse mentor and all of that, that it just kind of faded away. You know, it, it, people give you a pass maybe to some extent, depending on whether you've done some penance or whether you're easy to root for. I think that he occupies like this perfect sweet spot, right, where he... You know, he's still a good, he was still a very good player. He had incredible seasons after the suspension, but he was never, you know, like he didn't, it was clear he wasn't really going to be a serious contender for the Hall of Fame. And so we knew we weren't going to have to do that discourse. So I think people were like preemptively not annoyed by yeah. <laughs> in a way that like they, you know, so, so obviously are with other guys who have had you know, associations with biogenesis or whatever. He was like, he was good, right? Like he was an all-star. He, you know, he had a, he had a postseason round MVP. He won the Edgar Martinez award. Like he was a, a league leader in a couple of stats a couple of times. But, you know, I think because he was in this like good, but not great on a hall of fame trajectory, like, spot in terms of his on the field stuff and then was so obviously committed to good work off the field that I don't know I think people were just happy to give him a pass like the guy won the Roberto Clemente award he was like the Marvin Miller man of the year at one point he just I think that he was in this sweet spot where people were like he seems like a nice guy he's a good player we're not going to have to do this Cooperstown nonsense later. Like, we mm -hmm. can move on. I don't mm -hmm. know. I think he was in this perfect position. It was, mm -hmm. it was nice. Yeah. And I was going to bring up the Hall of Fame, not to suggest that, that he would get into it, but just to point out that he is in Cooperstown company. And sure. There was an entire episode or a, a large portion of an episode where Sam and I talked about Cruz and his unusual career trajectory. I think yeah. it was episode 1588, which was back in 2020. Now that the book is closed on his career, 19 years in the big leagues, 464 homers and uh, 130 OPS plus, right? And yeah. just such a late bloomer. Yeah. And so it, if you look at the company that he keeps, uh, as you were saying, like it, it was never really 
clear that, oh, he's going to contend for the Hall of Fame. It, right. it, it was always kind of clear that he wasn't. But right. from the day that he got a starting job, he played like a Hall of Famer. It's just yeah. that he didn't get a starting job until, until late. Yeah, yeah, until his age 28 season. He finally right. played 128 games and then 108 and 124. He didn't, I mean, 159, he finally played in 2012 when he was 31. But he wasn't really a, a regular player for most of a season until 2009 with the Rangers yeah. when he was in his age 28 season. And so if you look at his career war, almost all of it is from that point on. So right. baseball reference, he has 42.2 career war and 40.9 of it was from his age 28 season on. That's and, great. Yeah. And, and that is actually a really impressive total from yeah. from that point on. So just if I just look for just sort by career war for position players at baseball reference, like here are the guys within, let's say, you know, okay, 40, 41 war he was, let's say from age 28 on. So if I just say like within two war of him, okay, yeah like 39 to 43. So you have uh, effectively wild legend Eddie Stanky and uh, Jack Glasscock there. You have Tony Perez. You have Alan Trammell. You have Todd Helton, Billy Williams, Jorge Posada, Tony Gwynn, Norm Cash, Jose Batista, another famous late bloomer, Frank Thomas, mm -hmm. Jesse Burkett, Brian Downing, Stan Hack, Sam Crawford, Carlos Beltran. Those are the guys between 39 and 41. So tons of Hall of Famers in that group who were just yeah. below Cruz or Helton, maybe a likely Hall of Famer. And then just above Cruz within two were Harmon Killebrew, Tony Phillips, Ryan Sandberg, Zach Wheat, Davey Lopes, Art Fletcher, Mickey Mantle, Dolph Camilli, Joey Votto, Gary Sheffield, Willie McCovey, Eddie Matthews, George Brett. I mean, these are... Yeah name brand Hall of Famers who basically put up the same war year versus year as Nelson Cruz from like the day that he finally got a starting job. So like from the second that, that he was an established big leaguer yeah. for the rest of his career, he was a Hall of Famer basically. He just, he wow. didn't get to play prior to that. Yeah. And, and part of it, I guess, was that he didn't hit great in his first couple exposures to the majors, or at least right. like 2006, 2007. He played 41 games, 96 games. He didn't hit in the majors, even though, as I recall, he was raking in the minors during yeah. that time, right? And I forget, I think Sam and I talked about whether he was blocked or whether it was just that he didn't perform in the first chances he was given. But some guys, they get a late start, like yeah. Edgar, right? I mean, right. you know, people don't believe in them or there's some other good player entrenched at their position. And sometimes that can make a difference. So, you know, yeah. he would have had to come up several years earlier really yes. to have a, a credible Hall of Fame case. But when he was in the big leagues and when he was a, a fixture, he basically was a Hall of Fame level talent. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I And really, I do think that so much of, well, I don't know. It can cut both ways, right? I was going to say that so much of our reaction to these things has to do with sort of the existing level of like affection or animus that we have for the person involved. And there's something to that. Sometimes when you like really love a guy 
And then you find out, you know, he used PEDs, like it can have sort of a reverse effect where you're less inclined to forgive him because you feel betrayed, right? Like, oh, I thought he was so such a great guy and it turns out he was using PEDs and I think he was just in a sweet spot and people thought he was like a sweetheart and so they were like, eh, mm-hmm. whatever, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I am sure that there are people, you know, PEDs bring out such a strong reaction in some folks. So I'm sure that there's someone somewhere that's like, no, he is a... <laughs> yeah criminal you throw mm-hmm. him out of baseball but i think that people you know when you're not having to preemptively litigate like what do we do with peds with with folks it's, i don't know your read on it changes really dramatically i think and mm-hmm. like yeah we just get to be happy for this dude we're not gonna have to justify a hall of fame vote on twitter around nelson cruz so who cares yeah you could just enjoy him for what he was right. which was a hall of famer from a certain point on yeah, yeah if, if you hitter. look on Stathead, there have been let's see of the 169 al nl hall of fame position players the mean the average war from age 28 on is 38.4 and the median is 36.1 and Nelson Cruz was 40.9 so he was however you slice it yeah. better than the average hall of famer from that point forward and i think there's a saying sometimes people say you become a hall of famer in your 30s right cuz right. so much of what separates a hall of famer from a non hall of famer is can they sustain it yeah, do they stay healthy do they yeah. age well right yep but that kind of presupposes that the typical Hall of Fame talent has a productive 20s because they come up and and they produce well when they're young. So usually do you have the durability and the staying power is the separator for him. It's kind of flipped on its head because he did not have a Hall of Fame 20s. He barely had a big league 20s and then he had a Hall of Fame 30s uh, and late 20s and early 40s. So it just it wasn't quite enough. Here's a question. Uh, I'm going to ask you to be a little philosophical. How much of people's willingness to move on? And I can ask this question because guess what, Rangers fans? Your team won a World Series. You had a parade today. So I can bring Mm -hmm. up David Friesen. No one can, you know, it's fine. You're fine now. How nice. Like you get (laughs) to move on. But how much of it do you think is a certain quarter of baseball fans like looking at what happened in that World Series and being like, he's already suffered, you know, like (laughs) this man has experienced divine retribution in some way, shape or form. And we may we may all move on now because he's already had a moment where it's like, mm. oh, yeah, you know? yeah, maybe so. Yeah, maybe he suffered so. enough. Yeah, suffered enough. Last thing here, I just wanted to ask you since we have embarked on the off season, mm. I know you, you said you're excited about the reliever market, mm. <laughs> but but what are you looking forward to, or, or what is most intriguing you about this winter that? The market is is said to be banal, is is said to be not Thin. an exciting free agent class, right? Thin. So what is drawing your interest? It doesn't just have to be free agents. It could be sure. trade candidates. It could be mm. anything. It could be rules changes, so mm. whatever it is. But 
But what's getting you going here as we look ahead to, gosh, just a, a few days? Uh, November sixth yeah. is when free agents can sign yeah, with other close. teams, and then there will be options and opt-out stuff and yeah. non-tenders and yeah. <laughs> qualifying offers and all the rest of it. GM meetings will be right in the thick of it. Arbitration, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So. What are you? What are you into? What are you looking forward to? What would your reaction have been if I'd been like Arb? Mostly, I'm really <laughs> yeah. gearing up for Arb. <laughs> yep. Well, I I think that the most exciting um, part of it is going to be seeing. I mean, like Otani obviously is like a, a, in a tier on his own in terms of um, the intrigue surrounding what he decides to do, and I am fascinated by like what that contract is going to look like from a pure dollars perspective, obviously. But I also am just really curious, like what, what he is going to prioritize, how much he actually ends up talking about that. I don't know, but you know, are there aspects of this process that are really meaningful to him beyond simply the money? Um, and how does he think about the relative competitiveness of the club that he ultimately signs with and, you know, how, how much sort of, holdover is there for him from his experience with the angels when it comes to like really just wanting to see October baseball. So I'm, I'm fascinated by what his like hierarchy of needs is for lack of Mm -hmm. a better way of describing it. And then I think the, the most interesting thing for me beyond that is just like, where do the international guys end up signing? You know, I think we've agreed that the most intriguing group beyond Otani is you know, Yamamoto and Zhang Huli mm-hmm. and Matsui. And so there's like this group of really good guys coming over from uh, NPB and the KBO. And I'm really yeah. curious to see where they land. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think the broader kind of meta thing that I'm curious about is like, okay, so we've all agreed that this market is kind of underwhelming from a position player perspective. And so I'm really curious what's going to happen with the tier of guy who is like a good a good big leaguer can contribute a lot to a championship club might not quite be in that tier of dude where you win because of him but he's going to add a lot to what a club can do so like you know you're Matt Chapman's right I think there's like a clear and identifiable group of those guys on the position player side. And I am fascinated by what their market ends up being, both in terms mm-hmm. of how quickly it develops and how mm-hmm. lucrative it ends up being. Because mm-hmm. you could look at this class and say it's kind of bleh. And that means that everyone's going to be, I mean, certainly down relative to the contracts we saw given out last year, at least, uh, you know, apart from Otani and then maybe like Yamamoto and, you know, that kind of group of guys. But if you're the guy who's thought to be like the good position player, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if you're in that group, does that end up being kind of lucrative just because of scarcity? Like, mm-hmm. so I'm I'm curious to see how that goes. And then I guess the final thing that that I'm interested in is sort of how do the Rangers, Mets, and Padres get talked about? Probably mostly on background. But how do those three teams and their spending habits over the last year get talked about? And what are they used to justify um, Mm -hmm. when contracts start to get signed? You know, I don't know that ownership will even necessarily have to reach for the Mets and the uh, Padres to say, this is why we didn't spend a lot this offseason because it's, um, you know, such a kind of mediocre market. You don't have, you know, it's not like you got 
there's no Corey Seeker, right? Again, I'm setting aside like Otani, right? And mm-hmm. and Yamamoto probably is in that tier. And, you know, there is actually a good amount of um, quality starting pitching available. Mm-hmm. But on the position player side, like if you're an owner, you don't even necessarily have to reach for a cautionary tale to justify not spending a lot because it's like, who's there to spend on, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I am curious to see like how those three seasons get interwoven into the signing um, and expenditure justifications that we see emerge over the next couple of months because they have powerful narrative pull. Mm -hmm. And I view the Rangers as having equally strong narrative pull, but Mm -hmm. I suspect that MLB ownership will not agree with me. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'm curious to see how that all kind of shakes out. And I have one more thought, but I'm going to let you talk because I feel like I've been monologuing. Well, you mentioned the Asian players sort of saving this free agent class yeah, from geez. being boring. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that that is one of the top storylines for me. And it's partly just because when you're talking about the international players, at least there's a little more mystery surrounding them for us since sure. we haven't seen them day in and day out. Right. And our projections are are maybe not quite as precise when sure. it comes to players who are changing leagues like that, even though yeah. often, as we've said, the star players continue to be very productive when they yeah. come over here. But, but still, it's like new blood, right? It, right. It's not just guys we've been watching every day play it's 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 an influx right it's it's new new people who are going to be added to our our main characters right so i'm looking forward to that and yeah just just googling top free agent lists keith laws for the athletic just came up first and i think it looks like five of his top 11 players are Asian players, that's lumping together Otani and international players. But still, you have Otani and Yamamoto, and then you also have, I guess, uh, I mean, there are some players who are lower on the list, like uh, Kenta Maeda and and Hyunjin Ryu, if we're going to include any Asian player, including those who've been in MLB for quite a while. But you have Lee Jung-hoo, and you have Shota Imanaga, another excellent Japanese starting pitcher. Yes, that's right. Who's going to be posted. Who Zips actually likes better on a per-inning basis than Yamamoto. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So I would be surprised. I'll have to research this maybe, but I'd I'd be surprised if the very top of free agent lists had been had had that many representatives from from any Asian country, but especially players who were coming over to MLB for the first time. So yeah, I guess it's what four, four, not five, but but even so, it's uh, it's still pretty impressive, and I guess I'm I'm also yeah I am interested in whether the scarcity leads to higher prices or not because in theory there are so few appealing free agents yeah. that that might just mean that there are fewer teams in need of players at those sure. positions, right? Because yep. it's kind of how it works. You became a free agent. That means that your team perhaps has a hole or at right. least has to replace you. And so if those guys aren't becoming free agents, maybe that means that the needs aren't there either. There's uh, less supply, but maybe less demand as well. 
So it does put you in a bit of a pickle if you're one of the teams that's trying to get a lot better, but maybe yeah. it means that there won't be as many teams needing to make those moves. Mm, maybe. So, maybe there are a couple of clubs that wish they could build a time machine and go back yeah. in time and sign a different guy. Who could exactly. say? Who could say even which club I'm thinking of? You know, <laughs> right. like which one? Which one, Ben? I know you were. You were saying that at the time. but I was saying that at the time. I was right. Also, oddly intrigued by the Craig Council market. Oh, sure, yeah. <laughs> Which maybe Still is... getting around Craig Council, talking to, talking uh, yeah. to people, not just the Mets. And you might as well, even, even if he's realistically not yeah. going to go to the Guardians or wherever else, he might as well talk to as many teams as, you know, get that leverage, right? Yeah. Build up your, your market. That would and be so funny a... if he went to the Guardians. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I, will, I will laugh so, so hard if that happens. I will be endlessly amused by that. You know, more yeah. than it is actually funny, I will be amused by it. <laughs> Right. So maybe it's a sign of, of the relative lack of intrigue of this offseason that I'm not intrigued by a managerial sure. market. But it's he's, I think, kind of the consensus best manager in baseball now, yeah, right? Most people right. would probably say. And he's been with one team. He's one of the longest tenured managers. And obviously that team would almost certainly be happy to have him back. But he's uh, testing the waters. He's exploring yeah. the market as he might as well, even if he thinks he wants to stay, you know, get that raise, right? And right. there is a, a post at MLB Trade Rumors that just went up, headlined, Craig Council reportedly looking to reset market for managerial salaries. And this was a report from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. He's looking to reset the market for managers in terms of salary. I don't know if this is like a, a selfless thing. He's trying to help out all the other managers. Uh, there's, there, there's no manager's union or, that would be pushing for him to do that, right? But whether he's doing it uh, to look out for others or he's just doing it to increase his own salary, that's yeah. that's interesting. And he will be much in demand and there are some vacancies and all of them are interested in Crane Council. And it's interesting yeah. because... Obviously, his former boss is now running the Mets, yep. and so that's a natural landing spot. But then, as we've talked about, do you really want to inflict Mets managing on yourself if if you've been successful and happy so far? You know, do you want that sort of scrutiny and media attention? And it's not the clap. <laughs> it's it's not, but <laughs> it, it kind of is in a baseball sense. Oh so. no! What a terrible thing to say. <laughs> So, yeah, I, I'm curious. Uh, how high can that market for managerial sure. salaries go? It's, uh, I guess that's something I'm kind of interested in. I think a couple of things. I mean, just to, one of my final things I was going to add is Mets related, which is like I am very curious to see how Steve Cohen like approaches this offseason and what yeah. lessons he derives from his own club and you know how much funny money he's kind of willing to throw around in service of securing you know, an Otani or a Yamamoto. Um, so I, I will be curious to see kind of how he behaves and understands the market. And, you know, does he view those guys as um, impactful enough to say, you know, this is my big card to play. And so I'm going to play it. And, oh, okay. I have one more. Yeah. This isn't really free agent related, but, and I think we talked about this at the time of the hiring, but, you know, I think, Stearns is very well regarded um, in the industry. You know, we did see while he was in Milwaukee, him have a little 
you know, bit of the cost cutting, money saving, especially on the scouting side. And some of that, you know, I think can be attributed to the brewers and the the sort of budgets that they were sort of constricting. But I am curious to see, like, what we come to know of his, like, real true baseball philosophy from a personnel perspective um, now that he's in a market where those restrictions are presumably being lifted um, and where he's working for an owner who, you know, on the one hand has just like buckets of money to spend, but guys who become hedge fund billionaires tend to appreciate cost savings. So Mm -hmm. I will be very curious to see like how, how do, how we get to know him now that he's in, in New York. So there's that piece of it. And, you know, how does his sort of approach and philosophy interact with with Cohn's sort of proclivity to throw money around when he views it as, as necessary. So I, I'm, you know, I think that's something that will probably take more than just an off season to evolve. And it has implications that reach far beyond free agency for, you know, the folks who work for the Mets, but Mm -hmm. um, that is something I'm really fascinated by. So, yeah, obviously need to know if and when and where Rich Hill is returning. Oh Yeah. (laughs) Now that Nelson Cruz has retired, I'm I'm hoping that Hill will come back. I know he had expressed interest in coming back at, at yeah. one point and then wasn't pitching so well. He did suggest yeah. maybe he would do a half-season strategy. So we'll see yeah. what his market looks like. And yeah, Otani, in a way, the sweepstakes is, or at least the contract structure might be even more interesting than yes. it would have been before yes. the injury. Because 100%. if not for the injury, it just would have been... Who a will offer the biggest number? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which would have been interesting in a way, also. But sure. maybe there would have been a little less creativity with the structure or fewer factors to consider. Right. So, as you said, I don't know whether we'll get any window into his thinking during or after the process, but right. but it will be interesting to follow that at least. And I I guess I will be paying attention to whether we get any indications of further rules changes. Yeah. I don't think there will be anything as sweeping and dramatic as we had this season, obviously. And I get the sense that Rob Manfred wants to not pump the brakes, but at least take his foot off the gas a little bit. I'm doing driving analogies. Hopefully that was more or less accurate. But Yeah, that's scanned. That was <laughs> yeah, okay. I know about the, the two pedals that you have yeah. and what, what they do, basically. Uh-huh. Do you know Although, which one is which, though? Well, the fact that you have to use one foot for both really... <laughs> I think would be a problem for me if I ever, ever had to use, operate those pedals. Uh, Maybe your daughter should drive you around. (laughs) Yeah. I just, I think I would have trouble with that just because, you know, I have two feet and there are two pedals and I think, and I know why you you want to use the one. Yeah. They really discourage you from using both your feet when you drive, Ben. Yeah. Yeah. That's one thing. That's a, that's a big (laughs) no-no. That's a driving no-no. Intellectually, I know that, and yeah. uh, probably if I ever actually had to drive, I, I would learn that, I hope. But I think that yes. might be one of the hurdles for me to clear, that I would just okay. feel like, hey, I have two feet and, and two pedals, you know, fancy yeah. you here, meet, meet left foot, meet uh, brake, or whichever one is on which side. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> well, so here's the thing. I don't want Wheat you to ever chaff, drive. Yeah. Gas Wheat pedal, brake pedal. You oh, know boy. one of those things, at least. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not a farmer, but I am a driver. You're a driver. Yeah, you are um, licensed to drive. I am. I <laughs> I have a need for speed some of the time. Yeah. Um, 
Wow. Yeah. Don't drive with both your feet, Ben. You know, it's like you need both your feet for, for bicycling. Although I think that they actually have, I'm given to understand that like there have been some real accessibility advances in the biking space. So maybe mm-hmm. they've kind of worked around that. But um, yeah, don't drive with both your feet. Don't do that. You know, no. they're like, there's a big... No, no. Yes, you can yeah. you can confuse yourself and you can press the wrong one. Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. Not an issue for me. I don't press either of them ever. And but, to be clear, you don't have to drive if you don't want to drive, Ben. Yeah, I might. I maybe should, though, at some point, but we'll see. So. Um, Just think, they let 16-year-olds do it, so it I can't know. be that hard, you know? But that, that scares me. That makes me want to drive less if there are going to be 16-year-olds on the road, although I guess I'm going to be on the road sometimes one way or another. I just won't be behind the wheel. Yeah. But. That started with me saying that Rob Manfred was going to operate one of those pedals or not. (laughs) And I think he wants to just take a beat and say we we made some major changes and they were largely successful, but we don't want to push it. Right. Now, he could have said, let's seize the moment. Right. And uh, we were vindicated. And and now we'll have the political capital to pass all sorts of new measures. But Mm. I think he doesn't want to push too hard, too quickly. And so... I'm sure there will be some some minor moves maybe sure. made. Uh, again, I think he's keeping his powder dry to get robo-umps implemented yep. probably in 2025. It's sounding like maybe or challenge system of some sort. So if it is just that, that would yeah. be great. <laughs> yeah. So so maybe he'll he'll just want to, you know, call in his favors for that right. and not do anything drastic this offseason. But will there be some slight tweak to the playoff format? Will there be any consideration of expanding the positioning restrictions and implementing mm-hmm. the pie slice, which haven't heard a lot about no. this season, but but maybe since there wasn't a dramatic effect on BABIP and balls in play, obviously, right. and will there be anything else talked about along those lines? I, he did recently express his interest in further lowering the limbo bar when it comes to the active pitcher roster limit, mm. which I was heartened to see, but I think he said probably not next season. So Yeah. And, and they were testing some even stricter pitch clocks and that kind of thing in yeah. the minors, slightly stricter, but I don't know that people just seem so satisfied with the way that went that I'm not sure there will be much impetus behind further lowering the limit there. So so I don't know what else could be potentially on the table, but but I'm almost in the mindset of, hey, MLB tinkers with its product now, whereas before it was like if they change anything, wow, this is this is something out of the ordinary. Now it's I almost expect them to change something. They've they've moved the over. Window when it comes to how much you can change your sport, I yeah. guess, which is probably a good thing because it was overdue. Uh, I just wow, you're you're doing you're doing a bunch of politics and a bunch of driving metaphors, and I'm, yeah. I'm enjoying that. Um, I think that we will see minimal rule change stuff. I think you're right that like the next big thing is going to be a strike zone related implementation, probably of the challenge system. I am like encouraged by how universal the praise for that seems to be and how receptive to that praise he has seemed to be. So, you know, that'll be interesting. But I think that they do seem to be 
taking a slow and steady wins the race kind of approach to this stuff, which I think is the right one. Like it's, you know, let, let the dust settle. Let us make sure that we have a really good handle on what the effects of these existing changes have been before you contemplate new ones. I did find it funny when he was like, we need to bring back starting pitching. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, you know, we're all trying to find the guy who did this. So <laughs> Um, it's not him by himself, but like, it's like you, you want an optimized game and you want it to be like run by a bunch of eggheads. So like, yeah, dude, this is what, this is what your (laughs) bosses hath wrought. So there's that piece of it. I wonder, uh, when the first notable signing will be, you know, Mm -hmm. like I don't want to insult Jimenez and I don't want (laughs) to insult Max Muncy, but like, you know, which, which is, who's going to be the, the big, the first big Big mm-hmm. signing. Big signing. Right. And yeah. will Otani want to take care of business quickly or will he want to right. wait? And will that dictate the pace of other moves? Yeah. Are there enough teams that are in the market for him that their whole offseason budgets and strategy will be dictated by whether or not they get Otani? And yeah. I don't know. I don't know how big the market is of, of serious contenders who will be yeah, waiting to see where Otani goes before deciding how much money they have to spend on anyone else. But yeah, that's yeah. something that could cause a slowdown potentially when there's such a, a clear yeah. number one or even number one and number two with Yamamoto. So yeah. yeah. By the way, on the pitch clock topic, I saw that J.J. Cooper tweeted the postseason and pitch clock stats the other day. The mm. average MLB nine-inning postseason game took three hours and one minute to play this year. Okay. There were two postseason nine-inning games that lasted three and a half hours or longer. And on average, postseason games have taken around three and a half hours to play over the past decade. So okay. the average postseason game was matched by two games, basically, this postseason. And yeah, even with the postseason slowdowns that you anticipate, it was still basically three hours on average. And again, there were barely any extra inning action, too. So yeah, yeah, it wasn't notable. There weren't a lot of violations. The games were fairly brisk by postseason standards. Uh, Sam argued in favor of relaxing the pitch clock on some big plays, give guys a a chance to take a curtain call and and drink in the crowd and let all of us enjoy that. Just a handful of occasions. I'd be fine with that. I think there's some regular season precedent for that. The umpires have discretion. They They do. You know, if they want to give someone, you know, someone returns to their old ballpark or whatever, or or it's their last play appearance for that team and they want to drink in the adulation, they do have some leeway to suspend and and teams can, I think, request that in advance maybe. So something like that might make sense, but it was (laughs) uh, not an issue very often. No, and, you know, we're not an issue, and we, like, had bullpen games, so, yeah, mm-hmm, you know, right. and I, I know that I would imagine that those were the ones that were toward the, the longer end of the spectrum, but even mm-hmm. still, like, they were, they were still pretty zippy considering what they were doing, so, yeah. I don't know, yeah. I thought it was a success. Mm-hmm. All right, well, if there are any interesting storylines that we have omitted here that uh, you all are really excited to follow please let us know. I am excited to get excited about things if there are things that we 
left out. Did, yeah. <laughs> did you mention Cody Bellinger specifically? I, I'm kind of interested in Oh, in no, him. but now that you say that, yeah, Cody Bellinger, yeah. what are they going to do with you, Cody? Keith Law um, has him second on yeah. his list, which is aggressive. I guess that's kind of an indication of, of the class, the quality of the class, but... but Still, I mean, I'm not going to give away where he ranks on our top 50, which will drop next week. But mm -hmm. he is he is well ranked, put it that way. So, yeah, I will be fascinated to see what teams make of him, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, wh while we're interested in the teams that underperformed this season and what do they do? What do the Mets do? What do the Yankees do? What do the Padres yeah. do? Also, very interested in what the Orioles do, if anything. Right. Because they're maybe at the top of the list of like, OK, yeah. I know it's not the strongest market, but but you guys got to go get someone like you have right? <laughs> more prospects than you could possibly play. Yeah. You have so much payroll room. You have all the payroll room, long term and short term. Uh -huh. You've got a great foundation that's going to be cheap and good for years to come. So will they sign anyone to extensions and yeah. will they supplement these prospects with some really elite talent? Will they go get some top of the rotation pitchers, right? Which is an area of need for them. Yep. There's really no reason for them not to do that in a strong starting pitcher market, at least relatively yep. speaking. So they've got to be aggressive. I mean, they'll be good probably if they just run it back, but they really need to they need to add i you know i'm sorry if it if it erodes your prospect rankings michael Elias, but at some point you got to let those go it's a good thing it's a good yeah. thing if you're if you're good and you graduate a lot of prospects and yep. you trade prospects for good players because you were a good team now it's okay <laughs> you can be pleased about that and sort of the same for cincinnati too yeah i suspect that the question is not a matter of room. It's a matter of will. And mm -hmm. we will get an answer to that, I suppose. So here you yep. go. Mm. All right. Well, we will be covering all those stories and more. And maybe we'll talk about free agents even more when that fan graphs list drops potentially. Oh yeah, we should do that. That's a you know, that's a good topic. Ben yeah. put a put a pin in that. I'll mm -hmm. bug other Ben and he can come justify his choices. All right. Well, if you're listening to this not long after we posted it, you may still have a chance to check out a very exciting NPB matchup. Speaking of Yoshinobu Yamamoto and also speaking of great pitchers who have struggled in the postseason, he is one. But on Saturday in Japan, I believe at 6.30 p.m. Japan Standard Time, which would be 5.30 a.m. Eastern on Saturday, 2.30 a.m. Pacific, Game 6 of the Japan Series, NPB's World Series, is being played between the defending champion Oryx Buffaloes and the Hanshin Tigers, and it's an intriguing matchup for two reasons. The Tigers are leading the series 3-2, to two, and if they win, they will break the curse of the Colonel that has haunted them ever since 1985, as explained on Effectively Wild episode 1698. It involves a statue of KFC's Colonel Sanders being rudely immersed in a river. Hanshin has not won a Japan series since that year. They have the second longest title drought in Japan. We talked about the definition of droughts recently. I think it takes less time to be a drought in NPB because there are fewer teams, so the curses set in sooner. But they have a chance to snap that one, and opposing them will be... 
Yamamoto, best pitcher in Japan, about to be an MLB. This will be his send-off start in a must-win game, and he hasn't won any of his four Japan Series starts so far in his career. He had a lousy start in an earlier round, and then he had the worst start of his career. Gave up seven runs in five and two-thirds innings in Japan Series Game 1. This is a guy who has not allowed three or more runs in consecutive starts in the past three regular seasons. So a lot at stake in NPB, and I'm sure a lot of MLB scouts will be on hand. Here's the catch. I don't think you can stream it legally from the U.S. There's just no legal streaming service you can watch, to my knowledge. So you're on your own there. There may be streams on the dark web. I wouldn't know of such things, but just letting you know. The MLB season is over, but there's great baseball elsewhere in the world. And we sometimes talk about that, too, with your help if you are supporting us on Patreon, which you can do by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild and signing up to pledge some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay almost ad-free, and get yourself access to some perks. The following five listeners have already done so. Just Asking 27, Matthew Neer, Jeff Johnson, Sean McKelvey and Greg Scarfo. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only. There's an NPB channel there, of course. You can also get access to monthly bonus episodes and playoff live streams and discounts on merch and ad-free fancrafts memberships and so much more. Patreon.com slash Effectively Wild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site. If not, you can contact us via email, send your questions and comments to podcast at fangraphs.com. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify. Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We will try to cram in one more episode before the end of the week. So I won't wish you a wonderful weekend yet, though I hope you have one and we will be back to talk to you soon. Give me, give me, give me a 